In a world of podcasts about movies, sci-fi, TV, and podcasts about sci-fi, TV, and movies, two women chose to add their voices to the fray. Two sisters. One woman was willing to go to any length to explain away plot holes and bad pacing. I don't think, first of all, much like the entirety of this film, I don't think we're supposed to ask a lot of questions. The other, though, had no such sympathies. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Together, they joined forces to highlight the good, the bad, and the truly bizarre. This is See You Next Week in Space. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of See You Next Week in Space. My name is Sarah Walsh, and I am here with my lovely sister and co-host, Amy. Amy, how's it going? (laughs) Pretty good. Same old. I'm really interesting. Well, I envy (laughs) you because I personally am, am experiencing, like, the really shitty part of the movie Groundhog Day, but like even less fun than that movie oh what do you mean like the whole year of 2020 plus spilling over into 2021 indeed nothing has changed since march yeah i haven't gotten a haircut since march Um, i mean same all same i think the last time i ate food not prepared by my own hands it was like june um, oh, wow. That, on that <laughs> note, we're different. Um, <laughs> on that note, I will say that delivery is my best friend. But I know. I, I mean, appreciate you for not doing that. <laughs> uh, for the, the real issue, for those listeners who do not know, I live in a very small town in Idaho. And Amy lives in Brooklyn, New York. So, like, we have different options <laughs> in terms That's true. of and, food and delivery. There, and I'm sure... Yeah, that's very true. And even though where I live in Brooklyn, I would say there are fewer options than even somewhere else, perhaps in the city. There's still a plethora of options and they can get to me generally very quickly. So yeah, a lot of times we do take that route because we are terrible cooks. (laughs) I don't know about that. I've eaten food that you guys have prepared and found it perfectly fine. Yeah, I mean, we can do it. We are capable of it, but we both do not enjoy it and don't uh, just don't do it very much and aren't, I'll speak for myself, I won't say we, I don't, I'm not good at like exploring new things or like trying new fun recipes, like that's not me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have like a few go-tos and then when I get like majorly sick of those, which by go-tos, I mean like pasta. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Um, and tacos sometimes. Um, we, we've gone through, like, during quarantine, we've gone through phases. There was a phase where we, like, ate tacos constantly. Yeah. And there was a phase where, like, I made chicken salad constantly. <laughs> and then we went through some, like, lasagna-type phases. But now we're just squarely in the, like, I'm sick of it all. Let's order something or let's, like, eat something frozen. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I live in a place where there's maybe a grand total of 10 restaurants, half of which are owned by a church group 
that prays that like preaches prosperity gospel and thinks women shouldn't like do anything but be wives. Uh, so like that, Whoa. that like really cuts down on what I might even consider giving my business to. And then like, so you're down to five options, right? So you have five options whole- and you're like, well, None of these restaurants are even very good, but they remain <laughs> in the town because there aren't that many things to choose from. And so, like, I, mm-hmm. at the beginning of quarantine, I was like, I'll support local businesses, and I would, like, get stuff to pick up. And then I was like, you know, like, even the fanciest restaurant in town's best dish isn't actually, like, that great, and I could probably make something as good or better myself so I eventually you don't have any like delis or bodegas uh as I said I live in Idaho and the whites (laughs) generally don't excel at delis and bodegas that's not usually their area of expertise that's a shame I will say that's where Brooklyn really has a lot of places be like a deli and a bodega meal either or depending on what you're looking for Great, just absolutely great. I know, but um, let us not forget, anyway. Amy, <laughs> that this podcast is not like interesting this thoughts. This is a food review. <laughs> this is a food review podcast. We switched it up this week. I know it's not like interesting thoughts weekly with Sarah and Amy. <laughs> um, it is uh, a sci-fi television and movie podcast, and this week, Dang it. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Amy. It is <laughs> the rule. I would do so much better with food reviews. Uh, it is the rule of this podcast that you generally be, at the very best, mildly disappointed with every single thing we watch. Um, and so why don't you and say what we're talking about this week? Okay, so since we're not talking about food, I guess we can talk about this. Um, We are talking about the 1968 Planet of the Apes, the original of this, what kind of becomes, I mean, I have all this stuff written down here that Sarah wrote, but what kind of becomes, I guess you could call a big sort of franchise of sci-fi. Yeah. Um, And this, uh, I will say the original, I 100% thought I had seen it before. Like, I was like, oh, well, I've definitely seen it, but I just don't remember it. Definitely had not seen it. <laughs> um, the whole, like, I, you're having that experience where, like, there's only five more minutes left of movie, and you're like, when's the part that I remember going to start? It, well, <laughs> yeah, well, I, like, I knew kind of right away, I'm like, oh, wait, this is not the one that I've seen. Because I know I've seen one of these, and I'm not even sure. I wonder if it the was the reboot of, like, original Planet of the Eights with Tim Burton from 2001. It could be that, or it could be if there's one where they're like in New York city, I feel like that's yes, the one that I'm like, there is, memories of. there is. So there's that, but I did know, I will say I did know the upshot of the movie. I knew the final reveal and I was just kind of waiting for that to happen. Um, but I did realize I'd never seen it. <laughs> well, and I, that so that goes to just like to explain why I thought we could do this one um, is I realized we hadn't done a lot of like the super classics of the genre in a while. So mm-hmm. I thought this would be a good one. And I actually had a semi-similar experience to you where I knew I had seen this once 
at some point mm-hmm. in my life, but I have never seen it since. Um, and I remember being like, I think I liked it. I don't know. Um, so I was like, yeah. well, this seems like a good time to do this. Um, so, and, and it actually turned out to be a little bit, uh, not really the story itself, uh, as depicted in the movie, but kind of, as you indicated, the, the story of what happens with the movie and then ultimately the franchise is also pretty interesting. Um, so I'll start by talking a little bit about that. Um, so planet of the apes original is released in 1968 in April of 1968. And it is based on the 1963 novel, um, Le Panette de Signe, which I do not speak French, so I might not have done that right. Let's say I definitely Sounded didn't good. do that right. <laughs> um, and it's by a French author named Pierre Boulet, um, or Boulle, I'm not mm. sure. Um, and he has actually had two of his novels turned into movies in the United States, uh, The Planet of the Apes, as well as The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Have you ever heard of that movie? Yeah, of course. I've heard of it. I don't. It's one that I would never watch. No, it's nor I. A genre, a genre I might almost hate more than sci-fi, which is uh, war movies. We got to get onto a war movie podcast where we both <laughs> hate it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like... That would be fun. That would be really fun. Let's be like, who does a war movie podcast and we'll come and just shit all over everything. I know. That's what people want. I feel like the thesis statement of that entire, of every episode of every show is like, war stupid and I don't want to see like inv- entertainments about war. <laughs> it's it's boring to me it's boring and it's just like a lot of shooting and like I know that's a it's just boring to me and I and I've seen like clips of Bridge Over the River Kwai 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 whatever yeah Um, I think that's the one you know Parks and Rec it's the one where they have that song where um they whistle now I can't whistle but it's like dun dun the song dun 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 Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's very I mean, I like that song and I like whistling it, but <laughs> um but I don't think I would like that movie. No, nor I. And so then so this becomes and I think I'm fairly certain that this is Pierre Boulet's kind of only science fiction novel. Um, it's kind of off common, actually. I learned this because I'm doing some research about science fiction more generally for my academic work. And, um, it's really common for people who are perceived as really excellent literary writers to do like one science fiction novel, but because Mm. science fiction is considered a less prestigious genre, they'll just do the one and then go on to like do other things. Um, so it seems like, yeah, so that seems like what he did. Um, and then I also Mm. just wanted to quickly say that, um, so the screenplay, one of the major contributors of writing the screenplay is Rod Sterling, uh, Rod Serling of Twilight Zone fame. Ah. Interesting. I could see that. So that's why I think um, this story is actually. It, there are some kind of like reveals. It's a yeah, there are reveals yeah. that are done in a handled in a similar way uh, to various uh-huh. Twilight Zone episodes. Mm-hmm. So as you said, um, this particular movie. Uh, inspires an incredible amount of additional movies uh, over the years. Um, And to clarify, these additional movies are not 
in any way inspired by novels by anyone. So, um, I mean, but that said, I think it's like, it shows the strength of the story that the story is really compelling. And so then people are like, well, I want to know more about that world. What can I do? Um, so 68 planet of the planet of the apes, original flavor comes out. And then between 1970 and 73, four additional movies uh, in wow. the franchise come, out, franchise come out. The first one is Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And this may have been the one you see, saw because I think this is the one where they are like uh, underground in New York City. Um, oh, God. I don't know if that's possibly what I could have seen, though, because... Where in the hell would I have seen a random one from? I don't know. I don't know. Um, A lot of the visuals from these movies also just get like picked up and put into other pop culture things. So you may have seen something else. Yeah, it's possible I may have never actually seen the full thing of any of these. And I just have like pieces of them in my head. Yeah. So we have Beneath the Planet of the Apes, then Escape from Planet of the Apes, then Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and finally Mm. Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Now, Hmm. whereas the original Planet of the Apes was both commercially and critically successful, these additional sequels still got people's butts in the seats, but um, Hmm. were not very well received from a critical standpoint. And I don't Hmm. think that is terribly surprising. Um, And then there were also two TV series that were attempted in the 1970s. Um, those didn't really seem to go much of anywhere, um, and I'm not entirely sure. You know, maybe it's just like the medium or the story is better on screen than it is on the big screen rather than on TV. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we start seeing the more recent iterations of Planet of the Apes, starting with the 2001 release of the Tim Ver- Tim Burton uh, re-envisioned Planet of the Apes. Um, and then, and that is kind of like starting a slightly different storyline from the original, uh, series. And then that gets further elaborated upon in 2011's Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Then we have Dawn of the Planet of the Apes in 2014, and then War for the Planet of the Apes in 2017. Um, yeah, so like... And and I know I've seen some of these more recent movies, and those are, in a sense, connected to the earlier ones because, as we will see, evolution is a major kind of, like, story point in Planet of the Apes. And I think what these um, newer movies are doing are trying to, like, show that moment of change, in apes and like kind of follow through this early part of the story. Um, and don't fear if you are a planet of the apes fan, a fourth movie is in the works. Um, at this point, I mean, we don't have, it doesn't seem like we have quite (laughs) enough of them. God knows what remains to be explored, but, um, I think like what part of the reason why, this story remains compelling, um, is that, and I felt it watching this movie and even in the little bit of research I saw, like originally, uh, the book, the book, um, and the movie were meant to be sort of a parable or allegory about race relations primarily. Um, 
and and as and you can see that, but you can huh. also see what I think is even more kind of like not more impactful, but impactful in a in a more kind of obvious way looking at these movies now rather than in the late sixties is like the environmental aspect of them and yeah. like the relationship between human beings and animals and the relationship between human yeah, beings and I nature. Um, yeah, that's more what I got out of it than the, the allegory for race. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and then also just for context here, I just wanted to say that so Planet of the Apes comes out in April of 1968 and 2001 A Space Odyssey comes out the following month. Um, so bad month for (laughs) stuff that's boring. (laughs) And I was going to say, so this is kind of an important moment in the creation of modern science fiction storytelling (laughs) in film. Yeah, that too. Okay. I was going to say that too. You're just lucky I haven't made (laughs) you watch 2001 Space Odyssey. No, I won't. I've seen that one. I will not watch it again. (laughs) That also does have apes in it for a surprising amount of time. Um, yeah, no, I don't care to see okay. that ever again. So now let's talk a little bit about the cast, which um, is actually kind of surprisingly small. Um, and one mm-hmm. of the things that I think is interesting about this story, and I noticed it in the doing of the outline and in the taking of my handwritten notes, like the story is very simple, actually, and yeah. doesn't involve a lot mm-hmm. of characters and kind of just keeps on one track the whole time. Um, So the main character is named George Taylor, and that's played by Charlton Heston, who was 45 at the time of this movie's release. And um, there are kind of two, as often as the case, our cast members all have certain kind of thematic things that link them together. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of them is we're in the era where people appearing in Hollywood still often have stage names that bear almost no resemblance uh, to their actual name. And Charlton Heston Mm -hmm. is one of those. Um, Hmm. He was born John Charles Carter. And in fact, his mother's maiden name is Charlton. So I think that's that has Hmm. to be where that came from. Um, And then the other theme here is that pretty much everyone in this cast's life was... um, very much impacted by World War II, uh, mm. which make and that's especially true of the people in the cast who are over forty, which is most of them. Um, mm-hmm. In the case of Mr. Heston, he enlisted in the army uh, during World War II, and in fact married his wife uh, in 1944. And then this was really kind of amazing to me. He stayed married to that same woman the whole time. It does happen. It can, it can work for some people. I mean, I know that in like normal people land, it happens fairly regularly. But in Hollywood, yeah. I feel like this is a major accomplishment. Um, that is very true. Even the, even though, like, I'm pretty sure she was not an actress herself. But I feel like even when actors marry normals, it doesn't usually last le- that no, that's long. That's very true. Maybe because it was just different in the 40s, so they had, like, some type of stable base before, like, shit hit the fan in, like, the 70s and 80s. (laughs) I think what it really is is that uh, Heston has some very conservative and traditionalist kind of leanings, which I'll talk about Mm. in a second. Um, So, like, we... 
we probably know his main um, kind of big name roles. Um, but what I thought was really interesting is that, and particularly in light of like where we are at the moment in the United States, mm-hmm. um, he actually received a Q clearance from the American oh, no. government. Yes, he might be the Q that everybody Yikes. thinks about on QAnon. He is QAnon? Oh my God! No, he isn't. He died in news. he died in two thousand and eight. So it like doesn't matter. Doesn't oh, matter. but wait, he's still alive. that's exactly right. They just want us to think he's dead, but he's alive. That's right. He's here, and he is the puppet master for us all. And get on your tin. I mean, your tin. Get on <laughs> your paper. What are the hell are they called? What is it called? Tinfoil. Yes. Tinfoil hats and let's go. He is QAnon. Got it. Got Can it. I, yeah. Uh, so just for those of you who don't know, Q clearance is associated with the Department of Energy. That's real. That is one of the real things about QAnon. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Heston actually narrated instructional films for the Department of Energy like workers, which is why mm-hmm. he was given this Q clearance. Um. Now, in terms, I have a lot of questions, but not for this, <laughs> not for right now. This is not turning into a QAnon podcast. There's already oh, one of God. those. Um, one, I'm sure. Okay, anyway, I bet you there's so, more than one. and this is kind of an interesting segue into this later part of his life. Um, so Heston becomes, he starts out as a Democrat. In his mm. early life, so across the 40s, 50s, 60s, etc. Um, okay. And then, like a lot of people um, in the 1980 election, he swings toward Republicans uh, for Ronald Reagan. Um, and actually, well, Reagan was an actor, so I can. That's true. That. That's true. And I actually even have been doing some reading about this shift. Um, but I think, like I was saying with this marriage, it seems like he maybe had some more conservative leanings. Yeah. From the start, and certain ideas about yeah. what was right and what was wrong. Um, so he's, and he was one of the big kind of faces that supported the Reagan campaign because he was famous. Interesting. Um, hmm. He then goes on to become president of the NRA from 1998 to 2003. And he was very, um, yeah, he was very visible in that role. And then a vocal supporter of the NRA pretty much um, till the day he died. Um, and he ultimately succumbs to Alzheimer's. That's what brings him to the end eventually. He's diagnosed with it in 2002 uh, and passes Mm. away uh, in 2008. Um, And Mm. in general, quite a lot of his major roles um, were kind of big, like epic story type leading men things. And so this falls into that category. Yeah. the next character listed on IMDb is named Cornelius, and that is played by Roddy McDowell, who was 40 uh, at the time of release. Um, and it, for him, the way World War II impacted him is that he's actually um, born in England of um, Irish parentage, and he's a child as World War II is starting, and so he, his family moves to the United States uh, to be in a safer hmm. place. Um, and he is a child actor first. So do you ever heard the name Roddy McDowell? Yeah, I have also <laughs> because there's a reference to him in Mrs. Doubtfire. 
Oh um, God! Um, there's like a. Because monk, there's a monkey, a puppet that's a monkey, and he's like, all the people have been taking my roles, so and so, so and so, Roddy McDowell. Oh, um, so that's what I know. It for. I know him from a reference from that movie, but I've also seen him. Also, he appears in the classic Unlikely Angel. Oh, he does. He does. You're right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so because he starts out as a child actor, his first credit on IMDb is from 1938 and its last one is from 2001. So he acts for over 60 years. Um, that's a solid career. Yeah. And so as a child, he's in things like Lassie Come Home and My Friend Flicka. Mm. Um, a Mm. a few years before this, he actually appears with uh, Charlton Heston in The Greatest Story Ever Told. Um, mm. And he he remains a kind of staple character in the subsequent ape movies as well. Um, interesting. Yeah, and then he does a, a, like a slew of TV appearances um, at various okay. times over the kind and of... And Unlikely Angel. And Unlikely Angel. And then, <laughs> um, actually kind of, this sort of reminds me of Mark Hamill as well. Starting in the 90s, he does quite a bit of voice work. Um, mm. And that seems to be kind of where he rides out the remainder of his career is doing voice work. Um yes. The next character is uh, a character named Zira or Dr. Zira, depending on how you want to think of her. And that's played by an actor named Kim Hunter, who's 46 uh, at the time of release. And much like Mm -hmm. Charlton Heston, Kim Hunter is not her real name. Her real name is Janet Cole. And there is no... funny, both of their... (laughs) Both of their, that's really like a bizarre change, um, mainly because there's nothing really wrong with the name Janet Cole and there's nothing wrong with, I forget already what I already scrolled down. Oh, John Charles Carter. Oh, he would have just been John Carter. That's just like not, I think the problem with both of those. I guess they're both a little bit more boring yeah. in a certain sense, but they're. I don't know. I mean, Charlton Heston like sounds cooler, I guess, than John Carter. But Janet Cole and Kim Hunter, I those feel like those are just different names on the same plane. If that makes sense. Yeah, they're two like they're two ladies who are gonna be like, you're taking too long at the copier in your office. Yeah. Like, um, yes. <laughs> and you're just like, shut up, Janet. <laughs> I'll yes. be done when I'm done. Like, <laughs> yeah, they'd be like the current day Karens, right? Like yeah. they'd be. They're just like boring white lady names. Yes, <laughs> like. agreed. Um, and in fact, weirdly, still, like, uh, she was advised to change her name to Kim Hunter hmm. uh, at the suggestion of David O. Selznick. Have you ever heard of David O. Selznick? No, he probably should have changed his name. <laughs> Good one. Um, <laughs> I don't even know who he is. I have no idea. He's really uh, an important producer. In oh. the studio system of like the 40s, 50s, 60s, etc., hmm. um, and there are various podcasts about old Hollywood where you'd learn about him. Um, so hmm. that was just kind of interesting that she had this kind of personal connection to where he was involved in her name change. Um, hmm. And the war similarly affected her as well because she started out doing a variety of different kind of theater kind of endeavors and experiments. And the theater troupe mm-hmm. she was in in the 1940s got disbanded when all the male actors 
were drafted for the war. <laughs> so they couldn't oh, wow. and continue. They're like, they're like mm, we don't do any shows with all women. So like this shit's over. Yeah. Um, and her, wow. and her main kind of claim to fame is that, um, she was like, uh, I think she might've been one of the first people to play Stella Kowalski, uh, hmm. on stage, the staged version first, of course, in Streetcar Named Desire. Cool. Um, and then she goes on to be Stella in the movie version with Marlon Brando as well. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So she's having a kind of a very good career. It's building up, it's building up. And then, um, this might be something you didn't no, or maybe you did. Um, she then falls off quite quickly in the fifties because, uh, she's blacklisted as a communist during the McCarthy era. Um, but she actually isn't a communist. She was just a civil rights activist. So because she liked black people, those two things can get those two things can get confused in some people's brains. Yes, unfortunately, yes. Um, all this stuff of like how BLM and Antifa are like secret Marxist organizations that has not yeah. gone away. Um, so yeah. she was unable to really like build on the success that she had, which is too bad. Um, That's a bummer. And she, I mean, she still works, but she's not in nearly as kind of prestigious stuff until this seem this return in Planet of the Apes does seem like a kind of a reacceptance of her mm, in Hollywood. That's cool. Um, Though they made her play a, a monkey. Right. So we don't see her face. So it's like <laughs> it could be anybody in there. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. Um, and then th- the kind of final piece to this puzzle in terms of like people who actually have dialogue is the famous Dr. Zayas, um, who is also an ape. And Which one is that? He's the mean orange one? Yes. He's the blonde one. Okay. <laughs> Uh, oh, I thought they were orange. Yes. Um, orange? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he's played by Maurice Evans, who was 67 when this movie came out. And Maurice Evans has my birthday, June 3rd. What, what? Yeah. Whoa. Um, this is like, I think, the first celebrity I've ever run across who has my actual uh, birthday. Not the same year. He was There's, born in 1901. So nope, I'm same year. He was born in 1981. <laughs> he was born, he was born 13, 13 years after this movie came out, but he somehow was still in it. It's time travel. So <laughs> never know. Yes. Um, and he's actually your twin. We never told you. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> I can't wrap my head around that. Um, he's a British guy and he started in doing theater stuff in the UK and US and similar to everybody when the war came along for him, he joined the army and was then put in charge of the army entertainment section, um, in the Pacific theater of world war two. So he was kind of traveling all throughout, Mm. uh, the Pacific entertaining the troops Hmm. Um, now in terms of his notable roles, he plays Samantha's father, also named Maurice on Bewitched. So he plays a warlock, a warlock on that. And he also plays the beloved and ultimately doomed Hutch in Rosemary's Baby, which also came out in 1968. 
Um, I don't remember what character that is. He's the like, that, but I can't. I don't. That it's never is. clear exactly what the relationship is between Hutch and um, now I'm forgetting Mia Farrow's name in the movie. Uh, but he's like either. the nice guy who's like worried about her and then sees her when she's pregnant at one stage and is like, you've got to go to a like different doctor. Um, okay, so the only person in it who's not creeptastic. Basically. Yes, and he does okay. end up dying for that. Um, right. Yeah, perfect. Now, the final person we should discuss is a person who has no lines whatsoever because she is mute, because that is a major component of the story. Uh, the character is called Nova, and it's played mm-hmm. by an actor named Linda Harrison, who's 23 at the time of release. Um, so just to mm-hmm. check in, she is 22 years younger than Charlton Heston. She is effectively half yeah. his age. Um, yes. And they are love interests, folks. If that wasn't coming through from my tone, they are love interests. <laughs> um, now, she begins as a pageant girl, and you can see why. I mean, she's beautiful. She has great hair. Um, oh, man, that hair. It's so much hair, and it's, like, so lustrous. Like, the only person who has as good of hair as her is Juliet from Romeo Romeo and Juliet but from the oh, 60s. Oh. oh, my God. Both of their hair. I could... Wow. But this... And this girl's, too, like, in this movie in particular, which is the only thing I've ever seen her in, it was supposed to be kind of, like, mussy and, yeah. uh, you know unkempt and it still looked great it still looked totally shiny and beautiful (laughs) so you can only imagine when it's like actually like meant to look good how good it looks yes um so she was doing like pageant stuff and then through that she's spotted by a talent scout at 20th century fox who are the ones who distribute this movie as well um unsurprisingly this is her breakout role she also appears Mm -hmm. Just in the immediate sequel, Beneath Planet of the Apes, in 1970, she doesn't appear in any of the other films. I think she has a cameo in some of the more recent ones, but I can't remember for sure. Um, Oh, yeah. She's a cameo in the 2001 movie. And then she's got, like, a handful of other credits, particularly in the movie Cocoon. Um, And that's it. She just, for whatever reason, acting doesn't really become... The thing that she thing. pursues. Um, and I'm not sure if maybe she it's because she like does modeling or does something else, but um, that's... And these are pretty much all the characters we need to know for this story yeah. to work. Um, yeah. So now let's turn to the story itself. And so, uh, Amy, I've, I've kind of readjusted our structure so that like we'll talk a bit about the story, but as certain kinds of questions arise, um, I'll ask them and you'll notice in our mutually shared document that the questions are in blue. So just like, I guess, look out for them as you want to or don't or let it like happen to you naturally, however you want it to. I I see the first question and I already have my answer. Continue. Um, perfect. So We open the movie, um, and I guess one of the things I'll say about this movie as a whole is that it's really interesting to me, and I think it says something about, like, where in time this movie is made, which is to say the late 60s, because 
to me, it has elements of like old timiness to how things are done. And then there are other elements that are really recognizably modern. So I just think we're at this kind Mm -hmm. of interesting moment where storytelling is still, it's like we're maybe coming up with new ways to do storytelling, but we're also coming up with new ways to do visual effects. Um, and we have different sensibilities about like, um, like the sound work and all kinds of stuff. So there will be some times when Mm -hmm. I point that out, but that's kind of an overall feeling I got from this movie. So in terms of the opening, uh, we're hearing, we're like kind of seeing like space and we're hearing Charlton Heston's voice. And then we move into a spaceship where we are Mm -hmm. like kind of hearing again, uh, Charlton Heston, who is, I'm going to be referring to by his character's name, Taylor. So Taylor is recording kind of a mission log about what they've been doing. So Taylor is the captain of his crew, and he's explaining just to the air, essentially, but really what this opening bit is doing is the same as a title card. They're just not doing title cards. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I might have preferred title cards only because I, I went back and watched the beginning part twice because I was like, wait, what did he say? Wait, what's happening? It is the, the mission as originally described is a bit of a head scratcher, I will say. Yeah, I don't get what it was. So what was their mission? So my understanding is that what Taylor explains is that, um, and it also, it'll show like shots of him in profile. And then it's also showing shots of like the instruments on the ship. And the instruments on the ship say that for the people in the ship, it is, the date is July 14th, 1972. And Taylor says that from their perspective inside the ship, they have been flying for six months at almost light speed. And so because, and so that's like the fastest you can go, theoretically. Okay. Yeah. No, I, like, so this is already a very major thing in science fiction that, again, I wouldn't have known this if I hadn't been doing some research for my own academic stuff. Um, mm-hmm. What, particularly when we're talking about space travel, the people who want the science and science fiction to be quote unquote real or authentic. Mm-hmm. Light traveling at light speed is a real pain in people's asses because you can't do it. Because it's not real, yeah. right? So that I know zippity doo day about science, <laughs> but that sounds not real to me. So, but it is one of those things that, like, it, a lot of science fiction that involves space travel will say this light speed thing. So, yeah, because it's fun to say and it sounds cool. And, and you're like, woo, really light speed sure to. sounds fast. You're like, well, that's fucking fast. That <laughs> yeah. must mean something. Yeah. Um, so I thought it was interesting now that I know that this is a point of contention that he does say it is not actually light speed. It is almost that fast. Oh. Um, and so what that... Good way to get out of it. <laughs> indeed. So what that means is that though for them inside the ship, it feels like they've only been away for six months... On Earth, when this movie starts, because he, he has two different like sets of dates, kind of like in Back to yeah. the Future. Um, yeah. So for them, it's July 1972, but on Earth, it's March 2673. 
Yikes. That's a big difference. So I guess it's kind of, it's almost like for every month that you're at light speed, about a century. It's 100 years. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit longer than that, but it's about a century yeah. that passes. And so that's what's been happening. And I think because of what he says, because he's saying like, I'm looking forward to come, because they're set to come back soon. Yeah. And he's like, I'm looking forward to returning to earth and meeting like future humans. Um, and he even says, um, you who are reading me now are a different breed, a better one, perhaps. Um, okay. So does this mean though that like, this is what I don't understand. Um, and maybe it doesn't matter, but like their mission is just to go into the future. And how do you like fly in negative light speed to go back to where you were? Or is that not a thing? Right. So my guess is that they were never meant to come back to 1970 anything. The whole point of the mission was to see if they could reach this light speed thing and maintain it for six months. And then they were going to come back to Earth and... Like, we'll talk about it in a second. There's a malfunction in the ship. But, like, so they were supposed to be gone for six months. Yeah. Flying at almost, like, speed. And then come, and then they were, like, programmed to just come back to Earth and just be like, here we are. We did it. And I guess maybe the, the purpose of that is less about time travel and more about is it feasible to expect that people could do this. And, like, how would that mission have been, (laughs) maybe it doesn't matter at all, but, like, how would the people in 1972 know that that had been accomplished? They wouldn't. That's a dumbass mission. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, like, the idea, to me, the thing I was thinking about, because I'm also a historian, I was like, okay, well, the existence of a mission like this where we anticipate people will be gone for 700 years, give or take. That's an incredible amount of optimism for the future because it's like you expect that the records you're going to be keeping about this so that when these people come back... Oh, that's what they're thinking? Like, that they'll be like, oh, you're the people from 1972 that I read about. Great. (laughs) I mean, otherwise, I don't know what you thought was going to (laughs) happen. Well, this movie apparently is what happens. Yes. But that's, I mean, I guess that's also part of the theme is like humanity's uh, hubris or assumptions about the future... Um, but yes, no, people in 1970, whatever, planning this mission would know that they would not see the outcome. They'd know that. Yeah, that seems risky. Um, so then Taylor kind of wraps up his log and he puts himself into his own stasis pod and we see three additional crew members in their pods already alongside him. And the point is that they're supposed to come back to earth, right? So like the whole mission was supposed to take six months from their perspective to do this test. And then we get the cool title card of planet of the apes. And you're like, Ooh, okay. Um, the next time we get brought out of the credits and into the story, 
um, it's like I had to turn this way down. All of a sudden, my TV was like it got loud. <laughs> you know what? I don't know why. He- <laughs> You want to know why? Because I turned it way up to hear him talk at the beginning mm-hmm. because I was like, I don't know what dude's saying. And then this part came and I was like, I'm going to kill myself. My ears just exploded. Right. Well, because it's, yeah. it's, it's like modeling a rocket crash into the surface of a yeah. planet. So it was like quite a lot mm-hmm. of stuff happening. Um, so then inside the ship, uh, the stasis pods open up. And Taylor wakes up alongside his crewmates, Dodge and Landon. And as soon as they wake up, I also thought it was for pretty funny because they all had big, long beards and long hair. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. some amount... And so we should... And he was clean shaven at the beginning. So we know that some yeah. amount of time has passed since he did that log entry. Yeah. Um, Now, because there's been a malfunction, the ship has landed in this big lake. Um, So when they wake up and come out of their pods, there's water coming into the ship. It's like a rough wake up. It's not cool. So they're immediately trying to, like, get themselves out and figure out what's happening. They notice that the fourth crew member, the only lady um, who is named Stuart, um, she's dead. She died. It's rude that they killed the woman. Yeah, but they needed to for the rest of the story to work, as we will see. Um, I guess. And the reason she died is that her stasis pod cracked at some point during lights, almost light speed travel. So they have this shot of like a sunken, like desiccated corpse lady with a big blonde wig on its head. Um, yeah, not good. And I was like, that's a rough way to go. Uh, But on the other (laughs) hand, she was asleep the whole time, so maybe it was fine. I don't know. Maybe it was peaceful. And so then everyone is in a, like, kerfuffle getting things off uh, the ship before the ship sinks into the lake. And as this is happening, Taylor takes a look at the instruments on, like, the control panel of the ship. And it says that they have actually gone to the year 3978. So they have so gone they overshot it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So they've gone in an additional like more than thousand years from where they were when he was just making that recording a few moments ago from the viewer's perspective. Um, yeah. And you're like, woof, something's wild. So then they yeah. abandon ship. They have a kind of life raft and they get a some amount of supplies and they all get on to that life raft and they start pushing away from the sinking ship so that they won't get dragged down into the lake themselves. And mm-hmm. once that all kind of settles down, uh, Ta- Landon and Dodge kind of turn to Taylor and are like, what are we doing? Oh, I'm, I meant to say that like, um, the sinking ship effect, uh, that was an example to me of like old timey practical effects. There was something about it Uh, that looked a little bit like, have you ever seen those old like movies like Jason and the Argonauts and those things mm -hmm. where it's like, I don't even know what, I wouldn't even know how to describe the practical effects, but it's almost like they made a miniature of a ship and then put it in a bucket of water. (laughs) And then they were like, wait, it go down. It had to look like that to me. Um, It probably was. And so anyway, uh, Taylor then kind of announces unceremoniously, uh, we're here to stay wherever here might be. 
Um, and I was surprised by that because like the look on Landon and Dodge's face is a bit of a surprise, but then I'm like, what did they think? I know in my handwritten notes, I was like, wasn't that always the plan question mark? Um, and also I have questions and I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything about the end, but they immediately also go to the fact that they're on another planet. Right. When they're whole, they're, they're mission was they were landing back on earth right i'm a little confused as how they like immediately came to that conclusion well i think there are some clues uh Mm. that will that like one of them is that they notice that there's no moon for this planet so that doesn't that doesn't seem like earth and then as well like they we're not supposed to land. I think it's Landon says like we weren't supposed to land in the water like this. So they are uh, already aware that some kind of malfunction has happened. Um, okay. So that's why I think this idea that we might uh, be on a different planet seems fair enough available to them. Um, yeah. And they were always, as we said, they were always on a one-way trip. But it was just a yeah. trip to the future rather than a location. So that brings me right. to my first set of questions for you. Um, yeah. Would you go on a mission that you could never come back from? No. <laughs> I like, thought no. that would be your answer, but I just... <laughs> just no. Well, I just, I wouldn't, no. And especially not this mission. <laughs> well, I mean, this mission um, was supposed to be about just going 700 years in the future. If that, w- if you could be guaranteed. If that was it only. Yeah. No, still no, I don't think. Because that, and I see that your follow-up question is how much do you want to see the future? And my answer is like, not all that much. Okay. I mean, <laughs> based, but you wouldn't even want to. where we're at right now. I don't know how, I don't know. <laughs> like what I, I don't know. See, that was, um, that was what I was going to say. Like, what if someone came up to you and was like, hey there, young lady, what if I offered you the chance to just jump a nice cool 10 years in the future, see how things are going then? Like, would, would that if be? it's worse though. Well, I mean, if, I okay. mean, who knows, but. If I could bring like everybody that I wanted with me and would, I, would, I'm, and would my, would my future self also be there? And would I be like, no, cause you're no, no, no. You're like, you're going into the future as you are. So like in the tech, and I mean, just in the technology of this particular story. Okay. So So you would remain the age that you are, you'd get in your little time traveling conveyance and then you would jump 10 or 15 or 500 years to the future, but you would still be the age that you were when you left. Okay. I, um, mm, I don't know that I'm that curious about the future, like where I would really not want to come back to what's normal to me. But if I could bring everyone I know that I like with me and it wasn't like you're going alone with these two other dudes, um, (laughs) like maybe, and I would, like cap the time period up to like 15 years because especially now technology moves very fast anyway. True. So I feel like I'd be really behind even 15 years in the future. And um, yeah, I, it doesn't sound that appealing to me personally. Like I, 
I, I don't know. I'd like to hope that maybe things were like miraculously better <laughs> in the future, but I, I, I don't know. It could get, it could be way worse. It could be, what yeah. if you get there and it's like this bullshit that happened in this movie <laughs> and then you can't, and you can't go back. Like, yeah, that's horrifying. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I would rather try for the future than go to the past as a lady. Um, that's just yeah, my no, feeling. I don't think I'd want to. Yeah, I don't think I'd want to go to the past either, but that's why I'm going to stay right here, even as shitty as it is. <laughs> like, here at least is, like, what I know, and I can deal with what I have to deal with, but it could it could get dicey going forward or backwards. I don't know. Yeah, I'm well, now it. that you've totally endorsed the present, I will never accept you complaining <laughs> about anything ever again. Nah. <laughs> No, because I, because also if it if we're talking like a fun back to the future scenario or a fun like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure scenario, like I'm into that. You've got some type of time machine. I'm into exploring, but I don't like the this is your infinite choice. Okay, part. like that. The, this is it, and it's the one thing, and that's all you're yeah. gonna get. Fair and enough. You, and you're not sure. Sure. About like what could be. Okay. I don't know. Okay. Um, so then, uh, we have kind of a while of the three of them searching out, like, kind of a place where they can remain, because where they've landed is this very desolate desert sort of area, even though there's a lake in it, it's for the most part very desolate, um, and, th- and Landon and Taylor in particular are really like sniping at each other in these opening m- moments of the film. Um, and particularly because Taylor is very confidently saying things about where he thinks they are. And Landon is like, you don't actually know because there was a malfunction. So we truly could be anywhere. And all of, all of these little things are going to come to be important later on. Yeah, and so he's not wrong. <laughs> indeed. Um, so over the course, so then ultimately they take this raft, it goes down like a river sort of for a bit. And then they end up on a beach, um, at the edge of the lake or something. And when they get there, they determine that they have to start like walking kind of in any direction in the hopes of finding food and water because the supplies they have are only going to last for three days. Um, Otherwise known as they're fucked. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are in this desert area. And it is, I will say, I really liked the cinematography of this, I thought, was really nicely, beautifully shot. Like, really good production I value. Mean, it, looked, it did look beautiful to the point where I did look up where they filmed this because I was curious. <laughs> yeah. So it's mostly, like, these desert scenes seem to be mostly shot in parts of Utah and Arizona, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, at this point, Dodge... Uh, oh, I should also say as well, just so we can visually picture this, Taylor and Landon are white and Dodge is black. Um, uh-huh. And he and Dodge has been doing some, like, collecting of samples and doing some tests and he reports back that the soil that he has been testing has like I think he says it's like no carbon but like basically it can't sustain life there's there's no life anywhere so they're like okay well we really can't hang around here we've got to go somewhere where there's food and water and so they just kind of strike out in whatever direction 
because mm -hmm. they have no real way of knowing. <laughs> They so, have no idea where they uh, are. so they could have just like this movie could have been very short, and it could have then like cut to like just three corpses in the desert, like <laughs> which, whoopsie. which actually would be like probably that would be called the documentary version. <laughs> like that's the what would have really happened if this were real life. Yes. Um, yes. Luckily, because it's not, it goes on for another hour and forty-five goddamn minutes. But. Right. Um, so then there's like quite a while of showing them like trudging through various desert situations. Um, and as they become more tired and irritated, Taylor and Landon really start fighting with each other. And we, what's revealed in this conflict between them is that, uh, let's see, where is it? Okay. So Taylor like says Landon the reason you joined this mission is because you wanted to be this golden boy who was like feted and celebrated in like before going on the mission um but now that you real now that you're really recognizing what you signed on for like it's really coming home to you you're like nostalgic about a world and he keeps saying stuff like all these people you know they've been dead for 2000 years you know He's really, he's like really gleeful and like rubbing that in Landon's face. Um, and in part, that's he's not wrong though. Once again, no, he's not wrong. But like, um, we learn that the reason Taylor part, has been motivated to take this mission that he knew was a one way mission is because he was not really super happy about the 20th century Liked by anybody. Um, oh. he, well, probably not that either. Um, <laughs> but he kind of thought that the 20th century was pretty shitty. Um, and that what he wanted was that he was looking for something quote, better than man in this mission. And that's what he thought he would find. Wow. Um, now as mm. they're griping at each other, I know as they're griping at each other, Dodge like pipes up and is like, Hey, look at this. And he's found a plant growing in this desert. Um, and they're like, Oh, okay. So this gives us hope. And it's just in time because they only have a little bit of water left. So they start following these random plants to places where like more and more vegetation is growing and they ultimately find this big, they like cross a ridge and then they end up in like a waterfall with like a beautiful pond and you're like, oh yay, um, where they immediately all get completely nude and swim in the water um, and as they're doing that, Landon notices some footprints in the mud around the water. They look somewhat human, so they're all kind of like puzzled. And then we as the viewers see that as these guys are like frolicking in the water, there are people like little arms are reaching up and grabbing their clothes <laughs> and their supplies from <laughs> the rocks around uh, the water. And so eventually the astronauts notice this as well and start following the people who've taken their clothes from them. And where they end up eventually uh, with like just rags on because like the whoever took the clothes left various rags on the ground that they like then affixed to their bodies. Um, they end up in this cornfield or I think it's a it looks like a cornfield. Um, and 
And as they kind of come into the cornfield, they notice that there's this big group of people standing around. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're dressed in, I guess what I would call like caveman attire. Yes, that's exactly what I would call it, too. Uh, It's like, I guess it's supposed to be like skins that they've put on their bodies. Um, And when these guys try to speak to anyone in the group, they all look very puzzled at them. And Taylor then surmises that this particular group of people is mute, which is to say they cannot speak. Um, Mm -hmm. And he also, because of that, assumes they are not smart, um, Mm -hmm. which is not true. (laughs) Um, And because of that, he then goes on to make the rather amazing claim that uh, the three of them like could basically let's see if I have the exact wording. Um, oh, I don't have it exactly, but basically he's like, we can become the bosses of this planet if this is what the people l- who are on it are like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does. He's yeah. He, I think he yeah. He does say something like, "We'll rise to the top if this is what or something like yeah. that." Yeah. Now this now brings up my next set of questions. Like this seems like a weird line of reasoning to jump to we can run this place do you agree yes Uh uh-huh would you but he's go ahead when i was just gonna say like his his that wouldn't be my first leap let me put it that way but i am not someone who looks to be in power that's something that i don't find um alluring or attractive and a lot of people do and judging from the rest of this movie and even a little bit of the beginning this character taylor he i assume was the captain of the ship yes or the guy in charge yes um so he's a guy who likes to be in charge right like right he's, and throughout the rest of the movie his power being taken away from him is something that like really really uh i don't want to <laughs> say grinds his gears because yes it would be terrible but um he gets maybe even more upset than someone else might because he's really out and feeling powerless. Yeah. So for him, I think that it might be a logical jump. For me, no. (laughs) Yeah, I hadn't thought about it in the terms and particularly like when we think about the theme of like humans in the environment, humans and animals, race relations between human beings. A white man in his mid-40s really is used to quite a lot of unearned power. And so it isn't, I guess, a leap for him to be like, I guess I'll be in charge here. Um, And then as well, as you say, when he, when that power is taken away from him and he's actually put at the bottom of the chain, he really hates it quite a lot. He does Um, not respond well to it. and, And so then just to like clarify you don't ever want to be like king of any planet or like grand leader uh, of any planet. Yeah, I'm good. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't. No, I don't want. I don't want that type of power. Don't get me wrong. Like, I would like a lot of money. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, I, for example, in case anyone cares, I was a little miffed. I didn't win the billion dollar Mega Millions. This t- this week, um, what you were so, so close. 
I was so <laughs> effing close to a billion dollars. Do you guys have any? Do you have any idea what I could have done with a billion dollars? Because I had already planned it out. <laughs> That's a lot of um, dollars to spend. It's a lot of dollars and I could have had a really nice bathroom because that's like the main thing I want is a nice bathroom. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I would have been like soaking in tubs. You have no idea. Um, but so like literally he has like two minutes to imagine what it might be like to be in charge of these people. Yeah. And then this major noise happens and then everyone is like running around like in different directions, they just like disperse into this cornfield. Yeah, that was kind of creepy. Um, and this is actually a pretty long scene. Like this movie is like a lot yes. of long kind of montage sort of things. Um, and this is one of the first. So there's this really long interchange where we're watching these people like run and try and run up a tree or over a cliff or in deeper into the cornfield. And something is pursuing them. Um, yeah. And, we're, and for quite a bit of this uh, montage, we don't know exactly what is pursuing them. Um, but then at one point, we start to see um, like horses and bodies mm -hmm. on the horses that appear to be human beings. And then finally, and this did have like real resonance to me of like Twilight Zone and like Rod Serling. Uh, then mm -hmm. finally in the kind of towards the tail end of this little vignette, the camera like swoops in and closes up and who is riding on the horses? Amy. Apes. Mother ah! effing apes. No! The world is yeah, upside down. That's a terrifying, that is a terrifying visual, I will say. It was um, wild. It still works, even though this movie is like, 50 plus and years old I was still like whoa that's cool <laughs> like I really I was like whoa it. that's creepy as hell and also I was like I definitely have not seen this movie um, <laughs> because I feel like I would have remembered that part yeah um yeah it's a good visual so then kind of the the whole scene comes to a conclusion when Taylor um, jumps kind of over a cliff and lands in the water and gets shot in the throat kind of like at the same time. He passes out. Um, Dodge, the black guy, gets killed in this encounter, and I think that's for the best rude. Um, as, as the story it's develops. Rude that they kill the... Yeah, I guess, but it's rude that they kill off the wo the woman and the black guy first. But I, guess I know. I mean, we course. yes, we know that that's the case. I mean, the lady didn't even survive anything. She didn't, even, <laughs> like, she didn't, she didn't get to even say one damn word. Um, so he dies. Both Landon and Taylor are captured by these apes, um, and there's a really interesting, like, kind of post chaos shot where it had like people hanging upside down by the feet. Um, in like a row. And then there was another group of apes who had a pile of people at their feet and they were posing with them. Like they were posing with big game. Um, which like all of that, I was like, oh, this has some interesting resonances to these like themes that this movie is supposed to be kind of exploring. Um, yeah. we then arrive in a lab slash 
zoo, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. And Taylor sort of wakes up after this fall and he's semi-conscious and he realizes he's getting a blood transfusion from this unnamed woman at this point, this unnamed beautiful woman at this point. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And then he kind of passes out again. And when he wakes up, he's in a cage in this laboratory. And this wound that he had in his throat from this hunting encounter um, means that he can't speak for, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know exactly how long, but for a chunk of the movie, Taylor can't speak. And so he is like really trying to convey to someone that something is going on. And Dr. Zira, who is the animal psychologist who has um, kind of ended up in charge of Taylor keeps calling him bright eyes. Um, and she like thinks this is the coolest discovery she's ever encountered. Um, she's like, I'm pretty sure he's trying to communicate. This is really, there aren't other human beings like this. So I want to continue to investigate with this one. And she's so excited. She wants to show bright eyes, AKA Taylor, to her boss, who is Dr. Zayas. Um, mm-hmm. So... The orange guy. He is orange. And then Zira it has, like, darker hair. And I think they're supposed to be different species. Like... Yeah, I think they're... I think... I thought the orange ones were, like, more, like... Maybe what is what there is an orange monkey. I thought yeah. it was orangutans, but I don't know if that's right. Orangutans do have like orangey red hair, and there are others too that mm-hmm. have that. And then I'm pretty sure they mention at one point that Zira and Cornelius are chimpanzees, I think, or something like a chimpanzee. Mm. Um, yeah. So what's interesting? Oh, wait, really? Wait, there. You think they're supposed to be chimpanzees, not gorillas? I think. I think they said that, but They're I'm not... Quite large chimpanzees, but maybe well, chimpanzees are bigger than I but think. But that's the whole thing, is like all of... That was what I was about to say that's interesting to me, is that so human beings, despite plenty of scientific research, in quotation marks, stuff that I do in my day job talking about, um, human beings are not separate species. Like, we're all one species, and the species yeah. is homo sapien. In this world of the future, anything that was a non-homo sapien primate has become an an ape. So okay. so they and so they are all different species, but they are all evolved. So okay. there are like so there are like gorillas, there are baboons, orangutans, chimpanzees, like all of them. That's what this story posits is that all of them become human like in this way. Mm-hmm. So that so that's just interesting because it's very different from how we are as a species because we're all it's not like we're living alongside Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. I mean not not literal Neanderthals, just metaphorical ones. Um so anyway, uh, that is the situation. She invites Dr. Zayas to come and take a look at Bright Eyes. And immediately Dr. Zayas is like, I don't see why you brought me here. 
Um, there's nothing of note here. And Zira keeps saying like, no, look, every time I do something, then he does something. He is trying to communicate. And Dr. Zayas is like, no, he's just, and I, this is a pun I've been looking forward to say, uh, he's just aping <laughs> your behavior. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, but Zira is really committed. She's like, no, I think this bright eyes has something special about him and I'm going to keep studying him. And in fact, um, in this interchange, Dr. Zayas lets slip that if it were up to him, he would exterminate all human beings because um, they are a danger in some way. I mean, the world as set up in this film is that when they, like, when they were captured, they were like wild animals. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah. it would be like sort of as though someone would say tigers are a danger we just got to get rid of them all that's kind of yeah. like the equivalent here um but zira is not of the same opinion um and in fact she's so intrigued by what bright eyes might be able to do she puts the female that gave him the blood transfusion who will eventually become nova Um, into Taylor's cage with her to see if that, like, encourages any sort of development or behavior. Mm. Um, So there's various things that happen in the interim, but, like, to keep the story moving, what next happens is, like, because Taylor's got this throat injury that is preventing him from talking, and he is really desperate to explain to people, I'm a spaceman, don't treat me like an animal. <laughs> uh, he, he like, lures Zira closer to his cage, and then when she comes close, he, like, grabs her, and he starts immediately, mm-hmm. like, f- rifling through her pockets. Yeah. And we discover, because then he lets her go, yeah, And then he ends up with a piece of paper and a pen of some kind. And he writes down on the piece of paper, my name, I think he says, my name is Taylor. Um, and Zira is amazed. Um, and so she decides that she needs to take Taylor out of the lab um, and wants to bring him home to her fiance, Cornelius. Now, here is a major question uh, that like the movie just like rolls by and I find really like please why doesn't this mean the movie ends in two minutes after this Taylor writes in English and Zero reads it and she understands it yep and everyone's speaking English the whole movie long so yep if that is the case why doesn't anyone like say this is clear proof of the evolution theory that we're about to learn about in the next scene? And mm. similarly, from Taylor's perspective, why doesn't he say maybe this is Earth? I a hundred yeah, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I think there's other times where I'm confused about his absolute certainty that he's not on earth um 
And so that it's, that is interesting to me and I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, look, I know that we're in a show or in a, like not every, not every loophole has to be like tightened. Um, but I am like, this seems like, cause especially the rest, now the rest of the film, this is a major theme is like, what's the evidence for this? And I'm like, the evidence is that everyone immediately understands everything everybody else is saying. Like, Because if you were, even if you were, like, I don't know how to describe it. Even if he had landed back on Earth, Mm -hmm. if they had by accident landed in a place where people didn't speak English, he'd -hmm. he'd be like, but I'm still on Earth. (laughs) No, like, and yet he lands in this other place where everyone's speaking English and he's like, no, I'm not on earth. Like, I'm like, yeah, what is this guy's problem? Um, it's a little confusing. It's a weird, it's a very weird oversight that the movie demand or suspension of disbelief that the movie asks you to make, which is just a weird one. Um, yeah. So then Zira does indeed take Taylor to her shared home with her fiance, Cornelius. Um, and Cornelius is very skeptical. He's like, Taylor, much like Dr. Zayas, he's like, Taylor isn't really communicating. So by like when they're in their house, there's just like piles and piles of papers. And Taylor has been like writing all kinds of stuff on them. And Cornelius is like, no, this is some kind of like trick or something. Um, Mm -hmm. Or like basically what he's implying is he might be able to write, but he's not really intelligent enough to communicate. Right. Like this is some this is some trick that's happening or like he's been trained to do this because he's an animal. Um, Yeah. And part of the reason why Cornelius is especially skeptical is because Taylor keeps saying he's from another planet. And generally speaking, <laughs> people are like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, yeah. you're from this planet. And particularly in the case of this planet of the apes, Cornelius says it's been proven that flight is a scientific possibility. So you can't be from another planet. Um to which Taylor very cleverly bill like folds a paper airplane and then flies it in the air and they both and he's like boom roasted got you I don't even need to talk to show you you're wrong um <laughs> and I I do have to say it was great to see the looks of shock on their face <laughs> they were like oh. when, when that paper airplane flew like yes. about a millimeter across the room yes it was yeah. great um and so so then like kind of Cornelius is working toward being accepting of this possibility. Um, and they, and Taylor asks for maps to kind of show where he came from. And this is part of the problem again for Cornelius. Cause he, cause Taylor says, or he doesn't say he indicates like, this is where I came from. This is where my ship landed. And then I walked from here and Cornelius is like, you can't be from there. That's this place called the forbidden zone. Um, and nothing is there. And in fact, I know that for a fact because I'm an archaeologist and I went on a dig in the Forbidden Zone. And so I know nothing and no one is there. Um, in the midst of this discussion, Dr. Zayas arrives um, and he is basically like, I heard that you took Bright Eyes out of his cage 
I don't know why you would do that. Um, and in particular, we start hearing this thing that will be Dr. Zayas's refrain for the remainder of the movie. He's like, all of what you're talking about. In ter- so this is also where we learn that Cornelius, because of the artifacts he's discovered in this forbidden zone, he believes that the ape community that he is a part of has evolved from some sort of animal similar to Taylor. That's what he believes. And so this, Dr. Zayas makes clear to us, by virtue of things called the sacred scrolls, that's heresy. Mm-hmm. There's, if there is no evolution that would connect human beings to apes. This is a major issue that then gets re-examined uh, throughout the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. So Taylor gets brought back to the lab, and while he's in his cage, he overhears from one of the like attendants that Dr. Zayas has scheduled him to be neutered. Um, yeah, and so already we can see that Dr. Zayas is suspicious of whatever Taylor is and doesn't want him to propagate more humans like himself. Um, <laughs> And so when Taylor hears this, he manages to escape from the lab. And then this is another one of these montages where there's like quite a few minutes of him kind of running pell-mell through this village of ape people um, or a people, as I wrote in the outline. And I was quite proud of that as well, I must say. Um, (laughs) And it causes panic in the village, as you would expect. Um... And ultimately, this whole little section concludes with Taylor getting caught up into a net and is like, and he's like hanging from something. And as, and the apes are kind of like poking him or doing something while he's in the net. And then he shouts, his voice has come back and he shouts, Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. <laughs> and that's a famous line from the movie, unsurprisingly. That's- Um, and Zira has now arrived in this time as well. And all the apes hear him speak and are shocked because in this world, um, human beings do not speak. They're mute. So this is a major shocker to everyone, including Zira, who even knew that he was capable of communication, but who had not heard him physically speak before. Um, so unsurprisingly, Taylor is brought back to the lab and he's put in his cage, but Nova is there alongside him. This is actually when he names her Nova. I'm not sure why he chose that name for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like, the ape attendants of the lab spray them both. with, Or they start spraying him so that they can take her out of his cage because now they're being separated. Because, again, and this is on the orders of Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas does not want... Taylor to have the possibility of making more little babies, right? So he's like, get yeah. get that female out of that cage. This is a danger. No way. Um, and so once they're now in separate cages, they're like kind of opposite each other. And Taylor is still talking to Nova. And he this is when he realizes, or not realizes, he reveals um, kind of the reason why he decided to go on this one-way 
mission away from 20th century earth. And he, and he was basically like, you know, um, the world we created was one where nobody real love didn't exist. He specifically talks about love. Um, and I think what mm. he's implying is that like the free love generation of the late 1960s that was happening at the time Mm -hmm. um, meant that like kind of in a sense, everyone was out for themselves. And so, you know, not like a selfish world, but a world where you couldn't really trust anyone um, Mm. or create like meaningful connections with people. And I do know that that was one of the things that people who were not happy in the 1960s and 70s talked a lot about was like that free love, you know, sounds great maybe, (laughs) but like Mm -hmm. that it often can involve a lot of hurt feelings as well. Um, So that, so basically we get the impression that Taylor was a very lonely person in his old life and that's why he didn't care to leave it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he also let slip that what they were supposed to do is that they were going to create some sort of new human race with three men and one woman. Um, And Mm. I was just like, no. I think, you know what? That effing woman killed herself. (laughs) She was like, she was like, I hate this idea, but I can't say that because I feel too repressed i'm gonna break my own pod so i'm just gonna freaking kill myself well also horrible just from like the genetic perspective like and you'll see that my questions here is like what was the point of this mission um because if the point repopulate some new earth with right people right like if the point of the mission was to kind of expand humanity or whatever, like for even just from a purely genetic standpoint, four people is not enough. That is not enough genetic diversity. And in fact, even though I don't want to say this, this is the truth, you would actually have to send a lot more women than you would men because like with three men and one woman, she's going to like, she's going to be pregnant for nine months, then she has the baby. Like, yeah, no, (laughs) it's not going to work. It would be a slow process. No, it's not going to work. But if you had a bunch of women who you could get pregnant all at the same time, then you'd have like generations of people developing village of the damned. It'd be perfect. (laughs) Great. (laughs) (laughs) What a fun mission this is. Um, but the other question that like emerged out of this is like more about, how science fiction often has the trope of human beings wanting to like spread out, expand, and ultimately colonize new zones and new places. And I just Mm -hmm. don't really know why that's there because I don't think it's like inherent in human nature to want to do that. To colonize? Right. Or to like just be this ever-growing population of thing like um I know that like at the individual level wanting to have children is a very real kind of like biological imperative to a lot of people but I don't think it's just like because we gotta grow and grow and grow and then we're gonna go to this galaxy and mess it like cover ourselves all over that and then the next one like yeah um it's just a really common trope and I'm just I guess I'm just a little bit puzzled by it. And as well, 
if we're looking at it from just more of a strictly creating space colonies perspective, again, that is a super um, kind of Eurocentric way of wanting to do things because many other cultures that already exist in the world are not interested in doing that. So, you know, it's just weird that this is always kind of a recurrent theme in, uh, yeah, in the whole thing. Um, I, the other thing that concerned me about this little interchange is that Taylor verbally says that he loves Nova because she's the only woman available to him. Um, That's so romantic. <laughs> and, and my question about that is, does that seem like a healthy relationship to you? Yeah, totally. I would, that would be, I would be so flattered if someone was like, I love you only because you're my only goddamn option. That that would really like make my heart flutter. (laughs) So this is an interesting interchange for a number of reasons. And then we get to my personal favorite part of the movie, which is bum-bum-bum, ape court. Ape court. It's kind of, it's kind of like witch's court, but... Not quite as fun. I still haven't watched Witch's Court yet, but... No, I mean, let's face it. Anything court is the best television idea anyone could come up with. But ape court is great because you could be like just having people litigating over who gets more access to the bananas um, or... I mean, even this court seemed kind of, like, all over the place. I didn't quite understand <laughs> the rules. There was people yelling the whole time. I didn't really know who was in charge. Like, it was a whole... It was a whole thing. Well, that's fair, because what... Well, first of all, there's a lot happening. First of all, they insist that Taylor, who has, like, kind of affixed a blanket on himself like clothes um they were they demand that he take that off so he's in the nude in court um which is already i'm like i think being in court would probably be pretty shitty and then you're naked in front of people like that's that's like a very that's like nightmare anxiety dream territory times a thousand big time Um, But so then it's explained that Taylor is not permitted to speak at this particular trial because he has no rights according to Ape Law Saturdays at 8 p.m. Tune in for Ape Law. (laughs) Um, Or like, wouldn't it be great to be like Ape Law and Order and it's just like ape police people and ape uh-huh. lawyers. Oh man, there's just so many possibilities for what this could be. <laughs> um but what they reveal is that in fact this trial has nothing really to do with Taylor per se. It's actually about the scientific heresy that Cornelius and Zira are propagating because Taylor exists, which is this notion that uh, apes have, if modern apes have evolved from something like a human being. Um, mm-hmm. And so in the, in the context of that, then the trial, the prosecutor is insisting that Taylor speaks because he's been given a surgery in some way. And Zara's like, no, no, I've always thought that hum- uh, the human beings on our planet 
there's no physical reason why they wouldn't speak. So they, there's, they're mm-hmm. not speaking. That's not because they can't. Um, and then Taylor has Cornelius read a statement from him that again says he's from outer space. And they're like, no crazy person <laughs> that can't exist. And he's like, well, I'll give you proof. There's another human being like me. If you can find that person, then that will be the proof that what I'm saying is true. And then Dr. Zayas is like, oh, really? Another person, you say? Why don't we go outside? And they go outside (laughs) and they've rounded up this little group of human beings and Landon is amongst that group. And when Taylor runs up to him, what does Taylor discover? That he has been, uh, they've like cut out his brain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the reveal is he like, he finds Landon. Landon has, his hair has turned white, right? Like since Mm -hmm. we last saw him. But at first Taylor's like, Oh, I'm so excited to see you Landon. But then he turns him around. This is another real twilight zone reveal. He turns him and then we see the side of Landon's head and it's like all shaved. And there's this big scar on his skull. Um, and so like, I think what, like they can't steal his actual brain, but they, have like basically lobotomized him so that he won't speak. And so he he is not proof of what Taylor has been saying. Um, Of course, Dr. Zayas says, no, um, this particular human was injured. He had a skull fracture and that's what's happened. But what's to me really Mm -hmm. interesting is because we see the shaved head of Landon, it means whatever has happened happened really recently because he's still bald, right? Like they found him and they did whatever they did very recently. Um, so then we return back to the courtroom, um, and Cornelius and Zira both rather kind of unsuccessfully try and argue for their theory of evolution. Then the court takes a recess and Dr. Zayas invites Taylor to come and speak to him in his office. And in the office, Dr. Zayas reveals that he actually knows quite a bit more than what he like lets on publicly. And he's like, look, I do not believe you are from another planet, but I do believe that you are a mutation of the human beings that exist on this planet. And Mm -hmm. I do not want more of your type here. Um, So tell me where your encampment is. Tell me where you came from. And Taylor is like, I'm not from anywhere. I like my ship landed in the Forbidden Zone and then I came here. And if there are human beings like me somewhere, I don't know where they are. And Dr. Zayas send me to them. I know, because then I could be like chaps and I'm sick of it. Yeah. Um, And Dr. Zayas is like, well, this is really a shame because, you know, I will now, he explains, like, I'm going to kind of uh, torture you. And if you're protecting, (laughs) uh, if you're protecting Cornelius and Zira, you shouldn't bother because they are going to be put on trial and punished themselves anyway. So you keeping this secret about where other human beings are is useless. And (laughs) Taylor's like, look, I'm not keeping a secret. If I could blab on these people, I would, (laughs) but there's like nothing there. Um... So he's thrown back into the lab while various things are meant to play out. 
In the meantime, um, Zira and Cornelius have arranged an escape for themselves and for Taylor because they know what is coming down the pipeline. Um, so Zira's nephew, Lucius, breaks uh, Taylor out of his jail cell, well, his cage. Um, and Taylor is like, you've got to mm-hmm. bring Nova as well. I won't leave without her. She's like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Um, and then all of them escape into the Forbidden Zone because Cornelius and Zira want to go to the Forbidden Zone so that they can continue finding this evidence that they think will prove. And then finally, Dr. Zayas will like chill out and that's what they want to do. Um, and Taylor's like, I just want to get as far away from this as possible. And so we'll be together for some amount of time. And then eventually we'll like, you know, separate paths and each go our own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they arrive at a beach in the Forbidden Zone uh, and Taylor finally shaves his face. Um, and everyone is like, whoa, you're non bad. <laughs> yeah. Everyone is like, you look rough. And I was even like, cause he'd been in a beard so much of the movie. I was like, whoa, I forgot how angular his face was at the beginning. <laughs> Um, but it seems like they, there's a brief couple minutes where you think they've, uh, successfully escaped, but then Dr. Zayas and the various soldiers return. Um, and Dr. Zayas is trying to reason with both Cornelius and Zira to come back. Um, and he's, and here is where we have kind of the this last bit of scenes is like the crux of this movie in terms of like mm-hmm. the themes it's trying to talk about, like the conflict between religion and science, because Dr. Zayas is both a scientist and the keeper of the simian faith. Um, and he's like, mm-hmm. and he talks about the sacred scrolls that were written 1200 years ago, um, which bring, that would be 2778, just so we have that. Um, yeah. And then... Taylor is like, well, look, if you're so convinced about these sacred scrolls, then why don't we go into this cave that Cornelius says has all these artifacts? Because if you're so sure that the scrolls are the truth, then there shouldn't be anything in there that would be problematic. And so Dr. Mm -hmm. Zayas is like, okay, I guess we'll do that. And in the cave, Cornelius says that he he found kind of like body remnants of like quote unquote ape like creatures from 1300 years ago, which is 2678, and then also 2000 mm-hmm. years ago, which is 1978. And mm-hmm. in addition to those items, he's found things like glasses um, and a human baby doll that talks. And the baby doll yep. in particular is really like supposed to be. The major piece, yes, the major piece of evidence. Because even Taylor is like, if human beings couldn't speak, why would they make a doll that looks like a human that could talk? Uh, And here's my other question, just really quick. This part confused me. This part confused me in the context of the ending because if if he was certain he wasn't on Earth. Why is he pushing so hard that humans were there first and they could speak? I think what he's hoping is that if this notion of evolution is accepted, then he will be left alone to do whatever he wants to do. And then... But it seems like it should have sparked something in him like, hmm... Right. But yes, I guess that's probably right. And I think, and I think as well, he's like coming from 
you know, his version of earth where it's like, we all did accept that evolution from apes to humans happened. So why, why couldn't it be the opposite way around in this planet that I think of as totally different. Right. Um, so I think it's a combo of that. Plus if we prove that human beings at one time on this planet were intelligent, then I will be like allowed to exist and, and I mean, clearly this maybe is what we'll set up for later movies. He's like, and then I can rile mm-hmm. them up and we can rebel and then we're going to be in charge. Yep. You know? mm-hmm. Um, but needless to say, this baby doll thing does not convince Dr. Zayas. And I'm like, I wouldn't be terribly convinced of that either. Just with one baby yeah, doll. Yeah. <laughs> the best evidence but i gotta like commend whatever baby doll maker that was like that it still made a noise (laughs) two thousand years later like pretty good job hey yeah seriously guys (laughs) way to go um so then they hear some shots outside of the cave so they all rush down onto the beach there's a big shootout between the soldiers and the escapees and ultimately Mm -hmm. uh taylor takes dr zayas hostage and so finally, Dr. Zayas is like, okay, like soldiers, like back off. Um, mm-hmm. And Taylor is like, okay, I want to have supplies and a horse and I, me and Nova are going to go and you're not going to pursue us. And Dr. Zayas is like, fine, <laughs> I just can't, <laughs> I can't deal with this anymore. Um, and weirdly he's still kind of making this argument for how evolution worked on this world and he's saying like probably some type of person like me did exist and then they destroyed themselves somehow he's like who ah. and then he's so casual he's like maybe it was a plague maybe it was a bomb maybe it was a war who cares who <laughs> yeah it's just like what <laughs> you're not but i Seriously. guess again it's because he's not from that planet so he's like not relating to it right he thinks he's not on earth so it's like oh Mm -hmm. they just did something to destroy themselves and dr zayas is like you couldn't you actually know exactly why i've been so against you from the start because he dr zayas asks cornelius to recite the 29th sacred scroll which actually specifically cites the idea that human beings ruin the environment and are dangerous to themselves and other others and they specifically mention in this scroll that human beings are terrible because they hunt for sport um mm. which is a weird thing because i'm like well didn't he get into this world because apes were hunting humans for sport like remember when they were taking that picture of themselves in front of a pile of humans yeah. like so anyway um dr zayas then kind of like relates to taylor and says like I have been worried about you since you arrived because you are dangerous. I've always known this will happen. Our scrolls tell us that eventually human beings like you will come. Um, and I, and all I can say is that I always knew this about you. I knew humans were more capable than what they have become here. And I also know that human beings are the reason we have this dead zone, the forbidden zone on our planet. Mm -hmm. Um, so Taylor is like, well, if you knew this all along, why don't you tell me more about how this happened? And he's like, you'll find out on your own soon enough. I'm not going to tell you. 
Um, and so then so obnoxious. I hate when people it's a, say shit like that. It's <laughs> a weird one, but okay. Um, so then ultimately we're in the final moments of the movie. Um, Nova and Taylor say goodbye to Cornelius, Zira, and Lucius. Um, and what we learn is that while the human beings are permitted to leave to kind of strike out on their own and do whatever they're going to do, Cornelius and Zira are not going to be permitted to continue to do their research on evolution. That is just a no go. Mm -hmm. And I don't, they have, doesn't Dr. Zayas have them like blow up the cave where the evidence is? I think so. Yeah. So now why don't you describe the final moments of the movie? So he's riding off on a horse with um, his little girlfriend who doesn't speak anything, any type of words. And I'm not really sure what the plan is, per se. <laughs> um, like, if the if what happens didn't happen, like, what would have been the happy ending? Right. Um, so they're riding on the beach. It does look beautiful. I will say this. Where this is bit, shot, it is beautiful. Yeah, this bit I learned is shot, like, um, in the coast of California, California. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. So they're riding off on this horse, la-di-da. Then you start to see, like, a some type of structure that he is beginning to see. And he jumps off of the horse, and slowly it pans around. And he says... What does he say? What You wrote it down, and I'm not looking at it anymore. Um, he says... Damn you all to hell, or something. Do it more. Do it more theatrically. Oh well, he gets down on his knees and he puts his fists in the air and he's like, "Damn you all to hell!" Great and job. What he's, <laughs> I mean, I no notes. No notes on that. Thanks. <laughs> um, good. You, print. That's the printed copy. Um, so, and what he's seeing, what he's saying that about, is we see kind of. Uh, a defunct version of the head of the Statue of Liberty that has washed up on the beach. I, you know, finally confirming though, like he probably should have known we have been on earth this whole time. Right. So that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I thought that what it was is that, um, the, it wasn't that the Statue of, that portion of the Statue of Liberty washed up on the shore. I thought it was, was that like various geological shifts had happened. So like if you were to excavate, she would be all the way down there. That's what I thought happened, but it could be either or like, it doesn't really matter. Um, because what's funny is I remember this is one of the versions of this movie I saw, or one of the parts of this movie that I remember, which isn't this movie I found out, um, was that the reveal of the Statue of Liberty head was a monkey face. Oh, I think that's a later thing. Yeah, that's definitely a later one because I think it was also like floating in the water. I don't know. Um, I was So I was wondering if that was going to happen in this one, but it didn't. Um, yeah. So like that, oh, go ahead. The upshot of the movie. Oh, I was just going to say, that's the upshot of the movie, They're on Earth. Right. That's the big reveal. I knew, I knew. Yeah. That's the big reveal. And like, I think as well, when he's saying, damn you all to hell, um, he's not talking about apes. He's talking about no, human he's beings. Talking about humans. Yeah. Yes. Um, so like all and of it's, and fair enough. They fucked something up. We clearly. Fucked something 
Um, and that's the thing that I think like all, there are all these little breadcrumbs that lead us to this place at the end of the movie. Right. Like, so we, so I think that in that sense, this movie is one of the better ones, I think at like really wrapping things up, um, Mm -hmm. where all of the questions that were raised get like this reveal then is like, Ah, okay, got it. Um, because while it, we do, well, it would be interesting to know what exactly did human beings do to create the Forbidden Zone. And well, it, that's why they made eight hundred billion other movies. That's so true. Um, that's true. Like, so there's that. It's like I wonder where the moon went to because they said there was no moon. Maybe that's also related to this big problem that happened whatever it was maybe the day they said that the moon just wasn't showing and they're idiots <laughs> who knows um but like so i like that's the thing is like there are questions raised that would be interesting to answer but they don't need to be answered for everything to come together right so like i think yeah. that is really cleverly done um and i will say also personally from I, again, my memory of whatever Planet of the Apes I'm having, it's not good. It's blurry. <laughs> but I, I did like, um, I did like humans in ape makeup. Yes. I think better than I like the idea of CGI ones. Though I can't yeah. really yeah. say that I know that for sure. I le- especially, uh, I, and I, I do think... For 1968, this ape makeup was very good. Yeah, I was going to say that as well. I started, like, after maybe the first half hour or so, I started paying more attention to, like, do... Because these are masks, right, that people are in. Um, So it's all, like, practical effects. And I was like, oh, you know, it is actually... I mean, I think they're, like, better than masks, don't you? Like, I felt like they were... Uh, you know, actual like prosthetic, like yeah, probably. But like, what I was really paying attention to was watching how their lips moved relative, yeah, to the speaking, and it was really well done. Like, it didn't look like someone was just like using like a puppet mouth where it's like open, close, open, close. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So no, I thought they did a really nice job, and I d- I agree with you. I think we've talked about this before, like in terms of practical effects versus CGI. Um, yeah. I always like a good practical effect, and if you can use a practical yeah. effect and have it look great, then I'm like do that rather than CGI because there's something about it that I just seem to appreciate more. Um, yeah, I agree. And that, but then I think the other reason why this movie doesn't use it is not just because the technology is not there, but because, or I should say it the other way around. The newer movies use CGI because I know I've seen at least one of those newer movies and that's the origin it's story. Different. So yeah, they're it's different because they're not speaking. Right? right. Well, they are eventually, yeah. but like they're they're still very recognizably like apes and gorillas and chimpanzees yeah. of now. So yeah, yeah. whereas So I guess that's the, that makes sense as a choice. Right, so I won't right. admo- I won't admonish the new movies <laughs> for that choice. I did personally like people in costumes speaking. Yeah, I did too and I like that just also goes into again if you haven't seen this movie before and this has piqued your interest like 
I would encourage you to watch it. I mean, we gave away the damn ending, so sorry. Well, I mean, you, at this point, you know the ending anyway, so I don't think we really kind of. gave away anything. That's the, um, because it's, yeah. it's like, when I was telling James that I was watching this this week, he sent me various memes from Simpsons about it. You know, like, it's really yeah, and out I mean, there in terms of pop yeah, culture. And, and for a lot of people, maybe you've never seen it and you thought you did. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, absolutely. Because it's so out there in other ways that you might have this impression that you know what it is. And you maybe kind of do. But like, really and truly, I thought like the cinematography of this was really good. The production value was quite good. Um, some the acting was all good. The acting was good. The, some of the shots of like just nature and stuff were really beautifully done. Like, so it's a really well shot movie. So, yeah. And like what this, what our, did it win any Academy Awards or That's anything? a good question. It probably did. Um, one of the um, things that this podcast doesn't capture is like, um, because the story is pretty straightforward, there's a lot of like visual imagery that we didn't discuss, mm-hmm. right? Um, that yeah. So you're not going to get the feeling of how it looks. And this is true every time we talk about anything, but this one in particular is like, it's the story is good, but it really is much better if you kind of can enjoy the visuals that go along with it. I mean, even though you know now the reveals, the reveals are still good. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, so it's true because I was waiting for that final reveal the whole damn time. And like how the journey of like, how are we getting to that? Right, right, exactly. Um, I'm IMDb is not telling me if it won any awards. Let me. I, know, I was looking it up. I was looking on Wikipedia myself. Did you um, see any? Did you get any answers in that a, way? Freaking the, the page is long as hell because yes, it's that, <laughs> there's a lot um, happening. <laughs> there's so okay Academy Awards. Um, it was nominated for costume design. Yep. Oh wait, yeah, nominated for costume design and original score. The subsequent ones were nominated for the like the ones from 2011, 14, and 17 were nominated for visual effects, but it yeah. doesn't look like any of them won. Yeah. Um. It says that on Wikipedia I found it, and it said that um John Chambers, who did the makeup for the movie got an honorary Oscar in 1969 um, for the makeup. So that's that's the eight oh, stuff, you know? So, oh, yeah. I um, mean, as they should have, that's not even on here as a possibility. Maybe they didn't have a makeup category or they just... Were, I don't, I don't know. know. It just says that he wins an honorary award for it in the year of, you know, like that when it would be competing for the Oscars. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I would say truly, if you've never seen this movie, um, definitely check it out because it is entertaining. It, I didn't think it was super like draggy or anything. Um, no, it could have been like a, a scotch scotch shorter, shorter for me, um, like 20 minutes, but that's only, that's my, that's my own stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, okay. So let's do yawns and eye rolls in terms of yawns. Amy, one yawn is I was not bored. Boom. And then (laughs) 10 yawns was, this was the most boring thing I've ever seen. What would you give it? Okay. I'm going to go like 2.53. Cause I, as just, purely based on the fact it was a little too long for me and I did have a little bit of like dozy moments in the middle where I normally have dozy moments sure. that are too long. 
Um, but yeah, still, still very respectably not boring. So 2.5 to three. Yeah. And I'm going to just go full one because I was surprising. Oh, wow. I was like surprisingly like, oh, this is really like going along and I'm fully engaged the whole time. Like I really, cause what I remembered about it was that I had seen it and my impression was like, I think it's a bit slow moving, but then I watched it and I was like, oh, okay. It isn't. Um, okay, mm-hmm. cool. So in terms of eye rolls, one eye roll being, I guess there could be a planet where apes are the like apex animal on the planet. <laughs> and then 10 eye rolls is like, maybe there could be, but that it came up on earth and that we've all like demolished ourselves. No way. That's 10 eye rolls. Ooh, this is dark. If I say that, I, um, I might go 2.53 again mm. because I don't want to say that, y- like, yeah, totally that could happen <laughs> because that's a that's a little scary. Right. But I also I also don't see it as being so out there. Um, I think it is a very real, and we didn't we didn't really go into it too hard. But like some of the the theme that I grabbed onto the most, or at least I thought it was a theme, was our treatment of animals, right, and zoos, and specifically ape and monkey adjacent animals um you know uh, yeah I could see it and I could see the retaliation period being dark for us (laughs) yeah that for that reason I'm gonna give this a solid five like straight down the middle Mm -hmm. like I think it's perfect if we believe that there is life on other planets already then I'm like well then there's no reason it can't be apes. Yeah. Um and right? then similarly I don't think it's so beyond the pale to imagine that human beings on this planet will eventually kill ourselves. Um you fuck it up real bad. And then maybe <laughs> maybe that will open the door to something else being yeah. the bigger kind of life on this planet. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I'm just giving it right down the middle for that. So on that note, <laughs> have a good day, everybody. <laughs> Don't worry about anything. Uh, everyone will eventually get the vaccine for the most recent disaster we've caused amongst ourselves. <laughs> um, and hopefully, oh, good God. hopefully we'll learn from it. Um, so thank you, Amy. I am Sarah. Uh, and always, we will see you next week in space. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of See You Next Week in space. This is a production by Amy and Sarah Walsh with artwork provided by Riley Brown. If you'd like to learn more about our show, please check us out at seeyounextweekinspace.com or follow us on Instagram at seeyounextweekinspace. Until the next one.